Hey, this is Zuri Berry. Before we get to the podcast, I want to tell you why this project is so important to Donnell and me. We started this with the goal of telling the stories of journalists who look like us in this industry we love. We want to recognize talent, celebrate achievement, and give some flowers to some people who are really deserving to have the spotlight put on them. But also, it's really important that we hear from our fellow black journalists at this particular moment in time when our industry has enormous challenges and our presence as commentators, experts, political writers, on-air talent, and investigative reporters seem optional to some. That doesn't sit right with me, and I hope it doesn't sit right with you either. I hope you're here to hear just as much about the successes as you are about the struggles, whether it's the struggle to get that first job to find a space where you feel like you belong, to find the bravery to strike out on your own or to have your voice heard, whether it's about the current state of media or otherwise. And so we want to thank you for supporting us by listening. And we want to ask you for your direct support of the production of this podcast. You can do that by going to buymeacoffee.com slash black journos and donating today. That's buymeacoffee.com slash black journos. You can find the link in the show notes. Thank you. Now, on to the interview. This is the Black Journalists on Journalism podcast, a ZMC podcast production. We are back with another episode of Black Journalists on Journalism. And our guest today is one of my guys. It's one of my guys, got an Atlanta influence, got a New York influence, Karen Phillips is here with us. He's going to talk a whole lot of mess, most likely, but he is definitely a preferred guest that we've been looking to have on the show. Karin, how are you, brother? Good, good, man. Uh, we're recording this on a Friday, so happy Friday. I don't know when people are listening man. to this, but it is hot outside, and it is Friday, um, and I'm not going to say what the quote from the movie Friday said, but you know what it means. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's so good to have you, um, you know, uh, you're one of the first people that reached out and was, you know, like, I'd love to be on the show. And I thought immediately, I was like, I'd absolutely want you on because there's so much to talk about with you. He was already uh, on my list. Particularly with your career journey, you've been at some amazing stops. Obviously, you're in a high profile position now as a columnist or writer with uh, Deadspin. But, you know, I know you from your days at the New York Daily News, but you go much further than, back than that. And I think people need to know and know your journalistic career arc. And, of course, I want to talk to you about, you know, the Deion Sanders stuff, because obviously you have been uh, critical of him. And people, I think, need to understand why. And so we're, we're going to obviously get into that. And then um, some other sort of sticky stories that I think are still permeating out there, if you will, in the world. So it's much appreciated to have you on. Oh, man, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Karin, one of the things that Zuri and I thought about when we wanted to start this podcast was we wanted to share people's journeys because you are where you are, but you had to get there. So what, I, what we like to do in the beginning of our podcast is kind of start with letting you just tell us your story. Like, why journalism? Where did it start? Was it a high school teacher, a middle school teacher, a college professor that got you into it? Well, you, and just we'll work from there. Uh, well, like my, my story is a long winding road um and now i'll give you like two of the most important reasons and then the reason um that makes me why i am the way that i am um and the people who know that story understand it but a lot of people don't um i got my start in 2001 
in high school, my junior year, and randomly, I was in I was in National Honor Society, and I was in this other extracurricular club. And our advisor over the club was over the uh, high school news that used to come on, like the little TVs in class. People used to get little updates and give the scores, that little run-of-the-mill production that everybody ignored and no one paid attention to when it came on in classes. And one day, I don't know if the host quit that she had or they were sick or wasn't there. She just asked me and my boy if we could do it and fill in. And we were like, no, that show's whack. No one pays attention to it. And she was just like completely desperate. Her name was Mrs. Smith. Uh, and Ms. Smith was like, look, y'all can do whatever y'all want. I just have to have somebody do it. And we was like, whatever. Bet. We'll do it this one day. And all me and my boy did was like clown and like have a conversation and crack jokes because we had nothing to lose. It was like imagine giving two 17-year-olds a camera and a microphone and it just was like, go off. So we was like, bet. So we did it. I think it was like a Friday. Uh, we shot it. It went up. People watched it. People laughed. We paid it no attention. We went to the weekend and we came back Monday. And like soon as we walked into school, she was like, uh, can y'all do it again and host it from here on out? Everybody loves it. And we're like, what happened to the other people? She was like, don't worry about them. So we was like, cool. So then it just became our show. And we did whatever we wanted to do for five minutes. And it literally went from the thing that came on TV in class every day of the student news of the school that everyone ignored to the thing everyone had watched to the point that we got kicked off because teachers start complaining that when the program came on, they lost control of their classes because everyone was waiting for this to come on and they couldn't teach when it was on because everyone was laughing and talking about what we did on that show. Like we went from beg to get on to banned in like a couple of weeks. And I was like, oh, something, something's here. Um, and then my senior year of high school, uh, back where I'm from Saginaw, Michigan, because I had enough credits, because you, you boys really smart. Uh, we had like this big trade school in our county that was like a mega high school for all the high schools in the city, um, in the county. And there was a morning session for three hours and an afternoon session for three hours. And I found out they had a media broadcasting class. And it meant that, like, I went to school there my entire senior year for three hours. I had, like, an hour and a half lunch break. And then I came back to my high school for two classes. That was my entire senior year. But in that media broadcasting class, I learned how to read off a prompter. I learned how to write scripts. I learned how to storyboard. I learned how to record, white balance. I learned how to edit digitally tape. I learned how to edit on Final Cut Pro, the first version on a Mac. Um, we did news programs. We did skits. Um, I did like the most popular videos we would make. And when I left that program for a year and I went to Morehouse, my dream, I was like, I'm going to be either the next hits from the street, if y'all remember that. Remember that. Or Bill Bellamy. 
And I was like, this Which is... Which was a thing at the time. It was a big thing at the time. Like, Bill Bellamy, Bellamy a couple years ago had a, a TV One Unsung, and I was locked in. And I, like, watch his podcast all the time. And one of my homegirls was like, why are you so excited about this Bill Bellamy thing? And I was like, Bill Bellamy is all I ever wanted to be in life from the age of, like, 14 to 20. Because I was like, if you weren't there, you didn't understand. Like, Bill Bellamy... In our industry, we give a lot of love to Stuart Scott because like Stuart Scott was the first dude in sports who we saw who could just be himself and be black. But if you go back a little bit further before that, Bill Bellamy was the first black dude our age or a little older who was funny, the ladies liked him, and his stand-up, he was always in suits and dress well. He got into acting later, but I was like, like Bill Bellamy just gets to like kick it, talk shit, and be around Janet Jackson and just turn into the dude from How to Be a Player. And I was like, I want to be that. How do you be that? Um, and so <laughs> that was my goal coming into college. Things changed, but the second part of like my career started like senior year of uh, college at Morehouse. Still trying to figure stuff out, still trying to figure our way because, you know, we didn't have a journalism program. Um, I had been taking classes at Clark. I had joined NABJ. I had joined AABJ. I was just doing whatever I could do to get in the industry. I had a radio internship. I had a TV internship. Like, I was on the grind to do whatever I could get my hands on in any opportunity. And one of my boys was the editor of our school newspaper, The Maroon Tiger. And of course, we in the uh, cafeteria one day, just talking shit, talking sports. And he was like, "Oh, you, you, you be popping off a lot, but you never write. Why don't you write something?" Uh, there's one thing in life you should never do to me, which is challenge me or doubt me. And I was like, "Bet, I'll set you up." And I believe the first piece he asked me to write was like. Just a little small, you know, college newspaper thing was like, give your like top five Heisman hopefuls. And I did. And I remember that because like my dark horse was Marcus Vick. If you remember, Marcus Vick had like a short run where even Michael Vick was like, my little brother's better than me. But he kept getting in trouble. But when he was on, he was special. And I wrote it, thought none of it. But I remember the day the issue came out on campus and cats being like, yo, I read your story. That was dope. Or the first time I saw my name in a byline or like on an actual newspaper. And I was like, this is it. The problem was it was three months before graduation. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I figured it out late now what do i do and so it's long- how do i get another yeah. one of these bylines yeah so it kept right for that but it was just like all right you figured out what you wanted to do three months before graduation when everybody else figured this out <laughs> freshman sophomore junior year i was late to the party so that that started a long run of like you know freelancing covering friday night football shout out to the marietta daily journal uh, and John Bednarski, because he was the one that taught me how to cover live events and take my own stats. Um, and every time I see him, I show him a lot of love. But that was just a long winding road of doing that, figuring that out for years, uh, going to grad school in Syracuse five years after undergrad, after I had 
promised myself I was never going back to school. Um, internships, Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, but then, like, the most important thing happened. I ended my internship with the Salt Lake Tribune because we thought a spot was opening. Funny enough, y'all in the industry, y'all understand. You can ask them. We thought Tony Jones, who covers the Jazz for the Athletic, was about to get this job in Pittsburgh. But Tony wound up getting second, and he didn't get it. But if Tony would have left, Michael Anastasi was going to just promote everybody on the sports desk, and I was going to go from intern to preps. And so since Tony didn't get the job, there was – like nothing left for me. They had already like extended my internship by like three or four weeks. And it was just like, we want to, we just don't have a spot. Um, and then I had to go home and like live in my dad's basement for like 29 months. I had a honors degree from Morehouse. I had this expensive master's degree in journalism from Syracuse where I was kicking everybody ass in my program had these great internships in Syracuse, left the program early to intern in SJI out in Utah. Like I, I was, <laughs> I was, I was supposed to be in the next one. And then I had to go home for like 29 months, live in the basement. I refused to unpack. Like I lived out of my bags in my dad's house for two and a half years. Cause I was like, if I unpack, that means like, I am accepting that I'm going to be here. I tr- I got an internship at our, at our paper back home at the Saginaw News. I tried to get a job there, the Flint Journal, every paper in Michigan. Um, I had interviews with a million people across the country. I was depressed. I was suicidal at one point. I was an alcoholic. Um my grandmother got sick and got diagnosed with kids. Like every, I had went through like two breakups. Every like, I was broke. I was begging my friends for $25 to pay my Capital One monthly payment. Like every bad thing you can like possibly imagine happened in those two and a half years to the point to where I was even trying to get jobs like at the mall and couldn't get them because my resume was too good. And I I remember the day I started applying for jobs at the mall and I took my master's degree off. And as soon as I did that, people start calling. And I got a job because I needed it. And I remember what it felt like having to make myself small and devalue myself just to get a job to put some to put some value in my pocket and the way people treated me at those jobs. Like, Oh, you just a black dude. We hired to sell shoes at this Nike store. You don't have a future. Like they had no idea of like the success and the things I had accomplished. Like, I'm like, you got an associate's degree. Like you talking to me like I'm crazy. And you know, I ate it. And, but I, I remember that. And like, I lost count of the amount of, jobs I applied to in two and a half years, but literally Monday through Friday, every day for two and a half years, I sent the email to somebody who was on a job listing board or applied for something. So finally I got my first break to where I was like, look, 
You remember when Jalen Brown a couple of weeks ago was like, don't let us win one? Yeah. That's, that's right. what I was like. Yeah. Don't let me get a job in this industry. And when I got the first one, I was like, I'm out of here. Like, I remember moving out, move out day in the U-Haul from my dad's basement to loading that U-Haul to drive into Michigan City, Indiana. Y'all should have saw me. Like, they're like, oh, you you need the uh the, the dolly? You need it? No, no, let's go. I was like, Let, we out. Let's go. Like, I feel that thing myself. Because <laughs> I was like, we out of here. We not coming back. So, like, the grind when people talk about the grind i'm like do you have you have you I, mm. have you really been to the bottom have, are you really willing to or you know as we're getting older young cats would be like i want to do what you did i'm like do you really want to do it like do you really want you to do this understand the layers of this <laughs> or not people like, oh i want to write about race and sports like you do you have an african-american studies degree do you also have a, a journalism degree in sports? Like, I'm not just talking shit to talk shit. Like, I went to school for this and excelled in this at school. And then I went through all the BS to do this. I've covered politics. I've covered a Democratic National Convention. I have been in those planning meetings where you're at a statewide publication and there's a mayor debate and I'm the guy on stage asking the questions. I have been in editorial meetings with governors and mayors. Uh, and like I had a beef with like civil rights leaders and ministers and the state Supreme Court justice and all of the big wigs in the state and those closed doors meet. And like, and I have cussed them out to their faces um, and said the things that you tweet about and say in the dark, but you wouldn't dare tell these people the truth to their face. Like, I have done all these things. So when you're like, oh, I want to be in this space, I'm always like, do you? Like, do you have the heart? Do you have the endurance? Do you have the will to deal with this right or wrong and learn from your mistakes and say the things you need to say? So which is why if something goes viral or it's a sticky situation, I don't ever flinch because I'm like, I, I got death threats my first job. Like, this doesn't bother me. I'm <laughs> like, my phone number's been leaked. This doesn't bother me. Y'all mad at me on Twitter for a day? Shit. So whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, what do you mean? Like, I'm I'm good. I'm about to go to sleep. Um, but yeah, so we, we when you've been through those fires, like you just get it. And so like every job I've had after that, like I still have that same fire. Um, because like I, I remember being a fellow to wrap this up. Uh, an APSE diversity fellowship in 2015. And because of like some crazy stuff, we couldn't, our, our normal schedule wasn't the same. And the first time we all met each other as fellows was at um, APSE contest judging um, in Orlando at the hotel. If you've ever been to one of those conventions, once you check in and a little opening reception, there's this huge table with name tags of, you know, you, your title, where you work at. And I remember going to pick up my name tag. And this is the, the program for the diverse candidates that are rising stars in the industry that you should look out for. And all these editors are there. And I see my, I'm like, where my name? All right, grab my name. But like right before I grab my name, I stopped and I looked and I'm looking at all the names and I realized 
I knew all the names and all the places. And I was like, these are all the people I was begging to get a job from a year mm. ago. I'm here now. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> um, and like, I still remember that like every day in that grind. So people use, you know, you know, why you go so hard? Why you do things? I'm like, I still have a lot of things to prove uh, because like it's, it's, it's there. It's that Lamar Jackson, Aaron Rodgers meme when they were left in the green room <laughs> on draft night. Like, I feel that because I was like, that's kind of what I felt like. And when she felt like that, like you, you, you never let that go. Like you know that clip we see of Draymond Green uh, listing all the cats that got drafted before him. Yeah, I can tell you all the people who got jobs before me that shouldn't have got jobs before me. And like, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna make y'all remember that because that, we that, here now. That's, yeah, that speaks to that competitive spirit. That speaks yes. to your endurance. All those things, I. I sympathize with so much of it. Um, I didn't have the wait as long as you did, but I certainly went to the small newspaper in yes. the middle of nowhere. And, you know, it was like, well, now I'm in. What can I do with it? And how can I prove myself? And, you know, let me do all the things so that way I can make my way. Um, and obviously you've done nothing but flourish. You've done nothing but go from one job and be successful to the next. And so much praise and love for you and your journey in that respect. And you know, you mentioned Bill Bellamy. I just want to say just real quick. I saw him at Cobb's Comedy Club. Man, it's hilarious. He's a he's a national treasure. I love what he does. <laughs> that's such a that's such a cool memory. And that just immediately came into my head. I saw him at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco during that time period you're talking about. Yeah, because if you're not of a certain age, you don't realize how much juice Bill yeah. Bellamy had for about like a ten year stretch. Where it was yeah, like, no, yeah. that was the guy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so tell me, how, when did you get the first opportunity to really start uh, providing opinion journalism, sports columns, and things of that nature? It was actually my first job in Michigan City, Indiana. Like I was, my title was assistant sports editor, but I was basically the sports editor um, with some with one person under me, like two freelancers and two freelance photographers, and my boss was the old sports editor who was now editor-in-chief. <laughs> um, so he kind of was still, like, over me, but it was just like, this is your baby. Uh, but what came with that job was, like, every Sunday, you had, like, a little sidebar column you had to write for that position. And I was like, all right. And when I got that first job at the News Dispatch in 2014, I got started in February. I told myself, I was like, you got 12 months to get in and get out. You're in the middle of nowhere. You know no one here. There's nothing to do. You aren't making any money. You have 12 months to get out. I got out in like 10 and a half. <laughs> and <laughs> with this column, I knew I wanted more. So like what my coworkers and my boss had done was just like write local columns about, you know, the local high school teams were covering. I was like, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm writing, I write national shit. I write all the things I've ever wanted to write about. I wrote about um, stuff that was happening. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know why this is, is, is blowing my mind right now. But Michael Brown, what's the town Michael Brown got shot in? What was that, 2014? Um, outside. Missouri. Yeah, outside yeah. of St. Louis. Ferguson. Ferguson. Yeah. 
writing about Ferguson. Ferguson and all of my friends who were journalists who were there, national sports stories, just things of that matter. Because I was just like, I don't want to be local. Like, I want to be a national guy. I have free reign to figure out what works and doesn't work. Why wouldn't I take this opportunity? So that was like my first dabble. But my real first time getting into it was like when I was tapped to be a journalist uh, when I got to uh, Delaware, uh, at Delaware Online, the news, uh, the news Journal. And I got hired to be a sports writer, Enterprise. I was there. I was out at a high school softball practice. And my boss called me and he was like, hey, before you got here, there was this thing that happened um, down in the capital of Dover. These cops arrested this black dude and it was a police brutality case. Um, no, you have no idea about this, but like the video came out today. People are pissed off. It's what, 2014, 2015? It's 2015. We know what was getting ready to bubble. Black Lives Matter. And all the police killed. That was, that was, this was like right before everything just went crazy. And I'm like, all right, I only been here like two months, three months. I don't know what y'all talking about. Um, and they were like, yo, can you just go downtown and get, do like a man on the street story about reactions? And I was like, all right, whatever. Better than softball practice. Yeah. And I, I was at softball practice just getting some some color for a feature story. I was writing on the coach. And so they were like, all right, we're going to send you the link of the video footage. So I get to my car and I watch the video footage. And like they arrested my man. He's he's complying. They got his hands behind his back. They push him down. And then my man just kicks him in his head and like knocks him out. And I'm like, all right. Like the black man in me is furious. The African American studies black man is on red. And I was like, I'm not doing no whack ass man on the street story on this. And I remember I left and I headed straight to the newsroom. And like I had intention. I stopped at Cheesecake Factory, got me a slice of cheesecake and a strawberry lemonade to go because I was like, I'm going to pitch something and they're going to say, yes, let me have a snack for this. Like I had made up my mind. This is what I'm about to do. And I'm going to make them say yes. And I walked in the newsroom, my boss, the sports editor and the news editor were like, can we tell you to go downtown? And I was like, yeah, we need to, we need to talk for a minute. Let's go in office. And they were like, what's up? And I was like, uh, I'm not doing that shit. I was like, I understand what y'all are asking and I understand that we need it for the paper, but I was like, I can't do that objectively. I'm pissed off. And I was like, we don't have like any black people here and we don't have any black people here to talk about this in a different way. And I was like, but what I can do, because I'm not going to tell you I can't do something, not offer you something in return is I can write a column about this and about how I feel and what this means. And they were like, all right, come back in five minutes. We got to talk about this. And I was like, cool. Ate my cheesecake. <laughs> Came back in. They were like, 
all right, bet. Like, because like you're right, we don't have that voice. We haven't had that voice. Go ahead and try it. We'll see. And so I sat down because I knew I was gonna make them say yes. Uh, I wrote this column about what happened. They put it up. I went home. Came in the office the next day. You're right. So as I was getting in the office, my boss called me. He's like, hey, the editor-in-chief wants to talk to you. Well, not the editor-in-chief, the publisher. And I was like, all right. Mind you, I had never met the publisher. I had only been there like three months. And I'm doing straight sports, so I'm barely in the office anyway. I don't really know everybody yet. I didn't know that our publisher was this black woman who was the only black female publisher in the country. And apparently she came in the next day, she read it, and she was like, put that shit on the front page. <laughs> um, and then she called me into her office like a day later and was like, uh, we have an opening coming up. Do you want to work on the editorial page and help out with that and write editorials for us to be on an editorial board? Because uh, I think I was like the youngest editorial board member in the history of the paper. And they was like, and you'll get a chance to write columns. And I was like, bet. But little did I know, like three months later, my partner who worked with me on that desk was getting ready to retire and take an early buyout. So it kind of became just solely me, which was too much at a point. So I reached back and grabbed my old sports editor and was like, can you co-head this with me? I would do the heavy lifting. I just need some type of overhead as an editor to help me out. Um, and we worked out that deal. And I like basically ran the opinion pages for like two years, which was like the best thing that ever happened to me. Cause it's like, I became a columnist, but I also understood the weight of it because I was in control of the editorial pages. So not only was I given a voice, I was in control of the voices that the state gets to read whether that be on our website, in our paper, whether I was grabbing stuff from, from the Washington Post or other uh, publication that we could run on our site, I was like, we're not running no more straight white men. Not while I'm here. <laughs> Women, black people, gay, straight, Asian, whatever you are, as long as you're in a straight white man, you can, you, I'm running your stuff. Um, I'm going in these meetings. I'm putting sports to the side and I'm jumping into politics and local government and education and all of these things that like most people in sports don't understand, which is the perfect thing for me because when 2016 happened and I got to the daily news to put these two things together and Kaepernick was happening and the entire sports industry had to figure out how to talk about <laughs> racial and social issues. And we know our industry is white as hell and nobody knew what to do with it. I was like, actually, I'm, <laughs> I'm perfect for this. Um, so that's a, a longer version than I wanted, but that is kind of what got me here and in this life. How big was it to have a black publisher at that moment in Delaware? That was, that's, uh, that's like it was huge. Outside of my first boss giving me my first job in the industry, it's like the most important thing that's happened to me in my career. Mm. Because she saw me, she promoted me. We're still very, very close to this day, and we're friends. Oh, and 
she held me down. She held me accountable. And she was my biggest cheerleader. She also gave me the best thing that ever happened to me (laughs) was my first day on that job being fully in control. I was completely overwhelmed. We had our first big editorial board meeting that I was supposed to be taking the lead on, and I was not prepared at all. This meeting usually lasts 30 minutes, 45 minutes. By like the three-minute mark, she was like, ah, uh, yeah, we're done with this. And as we're leaving the room, she was like, Karin, my office now. And it was like two black people in the room, and she was like, close the door. And she literally was just like, what the fuck was that? And just like shredded me and ripped me a new one. And it was the best thing that like happened to me because it was like the first time I had failed in my career. And like, even with my parents growing up as a kid, I hated like disappointing them. And not disappointing her. And like, oh, it ate me up. And I just went back to my desk like a little kid and was like, just like, oh, I was in my feelings worse than Drake's second album. Like, I was, I, I, it was like the Take Care album. I was, I was. the best album, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But I, I'm, I'm hurt, right? <laughs> yeah. And so after about an hour, like, I got my shit together. And like, I don't learn from success. I only learn from failure. And I was like, this will never happen ever again. And I was like, all right, I got an atone. It was four other people in this meeting, but I embarrassed myself for four other people. I got up. I went to everyone that was in that meeting individually, apologized, shook their hand, looked them in the eye and was like, that will never happen again. It will be better. Everybody was like, oh, don't worry, no big thing. I was like, no, this is a huge fucking thing. I don't do stuff like this. And from there on out, there was weekly outlines. <laughs> like It got to the point to where not only was I running that mean like I was supposed to, when we would have the big wigs and the governors and the people who was coming in, I would sit next to her every meeting and they looking at her as the publisher and she would be like, you know, welcome, but uh, Karen, go ahead. <laughs> like I ran the meetings. It was just like, we're gonna talk about whatever Karen wants to talk about. Um and like What's what's your name? Uh, Susan D. Leaf. Uh is my big sister. That is my road dog. Uh and like Susan D. Leaf played a part in changing my life. I'll be forever grateful. This is not one of those moments where I have to give her, her flowers. She's already gotten them. Um I've told her this on countless times to countless people. But yeah, like you need that one person. Uh, to have your back hold you down, promote you, and hold you accountable. Um, so whenever the next job or the next challenge or any other thing happened, like I was already prepared for it because like once a black woman, black woman like smacks you and knocks you down, but also helps you back up, <laughs> you can take any punch ever after that. Um, but I'm the type of person that was like, all right. I ain't get I get knocked down once. I ain't get knocked down twice. Um, so anything that's ever coming my way, or even like little, you know, 
young cats that want advice, like it's one of the things I always try to tell them. Like, look, when that first failure happens, it's going to happen. You're going to really fuck up once. Don't be so quick to get over it. Like, <laughs> throw that mug in your book bag and keep it with you as a reminder and remember how it felt so that anytime anything else happens, you know you can overcome it and use it as like a battery in your back to keep going because like, yeah, stuff go wrong and I'll just be like, 2015 Delaware, can't let that happen again. Uh, because like you, <laughs> like you remember the losses yeah. more than the wins. You do. Because we, you if do. you start remembering the wins more than the losses, you'll get lost and off track real quick. Um, and I'm one of those people that I hate losing more than I like winning. And I really, really love winning. But if I lose, I, I'm, I will, I'm up for weeks. <laughs> yeah, I think you and I are in the same mold in that respect. You know, it's certainly to the point, And I think I forget the wins. I don't, I don't remember them. And people have to remind me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember all the L's I took. Oh, yeah, I do. I remember getting that, you know, column ripped to shreds or that copy ripped to shreds or whatever it was. I remember that. And I don't let it go. I, I, it stays with yeah, you. Like, you know? it, it's even to the point to like, y'all know at NABJ, we don't do this no more. But like, oh, NABJ. My first NABJ was 05 in Atlanta. And y'all remember how crazy big the job fair used to be? It used to just be like a million people. And this is my first one. I don't know what I'm doing. I just walk in with like some clips, terrible clips from like still newspaper. And the first table I see, it's an old head sitting there from some paper. Don't know who he is. Don't know nothing. I was just like, hey, can I show you my resume and my clips? Don't know what you hired for. Maybe you might have an internship, sir. He was like, all right, son, let me see him. I had never seen or thought white paper could be so red. <laughs> like, that man shredded me. Like, to the point where I was like, do I need to quit? <laughs> like, do I, need, do I need to give up? <laughs> I'm gonna walk away from this. Like, son, you ain't even came over here anyway. You ain't even got the right font for your name at the top, son. It ain't even center right. I'm just, I didn't even get my name right. And I remember leaving the 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 job fair, going down the hallway, sitting down, just looking like I am horrible. And everybody else walking around their suits and smiling, and people like, ah, I just I just secured a job, and I'm just like, I am so far away. But now I'm like, as I see like this younger generation with the internet and they just get on at places and they think they're good and they suck. And I'm like, you didn't have that old cat when you, was, pen. When you was 21 with that red pen to be like, nah, you ain't got it. But here's how you get it. Yeah. Um, and I wish we could have that back, like that part of the game back. Because, like, listen, getting shredded is the foundation in how you get started. If you don't have a – every great journalist has a getting shredded story. If you don't have – if I ask you, like, you ever got shredded, you're like, no, nah. I'm like, you suck. Get out of here. Yeah, because everything, everything I wrote was published. Yeah, like, like come you, on, you yeah. suck. Come on, man. You yeah. suck. And then, 
Listen, I, I, I listen. I used to be trash, and I think like it, it being trash isn't the problem in our in our industry. If you don't accept the fact that you are trash and want to not be trash, that's that's the path. But just thinking that like, oh, you've never been trash. Yeah, Come I think on, there's a you've been trash. There's, there's the <laughs> the rare person that is you know shown and flashed talent, if you will, very early, very young. And the, the reality is that it is incredibly rare. But even that person, if, if you ask them, hey, what do you think about their, your early stuff? And they'd be like, it was trash. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But th- th- that's the thing. It's all about continual improvement. And if you're not thinking about that from a craft perspective, from a reporting perspective, from a relationship building perspective, any of those things that are integral to our work, you're going to find yourself obsolete. You're going to find yourself pushed out. You're going to find yourself, you know, falling behind, if you will, because this business requires you to think about all of those things constantly. And it, and it, it forces you to continue to not just work at your craft, he said, but evolve. Like, especially with the internet and social media, you have seen the dinosaurs in that industry go to the wayside because, oh, you didn't want to learn SEO? <clears throat> you ain't going to be around here too much longer, player. Oh, <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't want to tweet? You ain't going to be around here too much longer, player. It's like, oh, I just, I just missed the old days of just editing and writing. And... Nah, you got to keep, especially well, in sports, I'm like, if you got to add something new to your game every offseason, it's the same thing. If you, you you wind up being Mark Jackson, trying to play two bigs, <laughs> this is not a two big era of basketball anymore. <laughs> you you got to have a small ball five, and it's just like you will be by the wayside if you don't keep evolving the way that you go about your career. Can you talk to us about the time at the New York Daily News? And I, and I said this, I think, before we started this uh, recording that uh, – that's a little bit of when I came to start to experience your writing. I was like, oh, man, this dude's spitting hot fire. What's going on over there? You know, that's pretty dope. It's nice to see somebody who looks like us. And I remember Leon Carter was still at the uh, Daily News at the time as a sports editor. He was gone. He out. was at ESPN. Oh, was he already at he ESPN? He had just left ESPN New York and was just was yeah. like strictly at ESPN. Um, gotcha. But tell me about your time. But Leon is how I got my job. Um, wow. That is shout out to Leon, that, another that, SJ, SJI co-director. That, that is my <laughs> role dog. Um, um, like he is very influential on how I got that job. But like that job is so important to me because here's the inside baseball story. I had, if you remember, the end of. Right before 2016, because I got that job in 2017. And like a year or year and a half before, I had a meeting with Kevin Merida in D.C. And this was like six or seven months. It was in December. The Undefeated published that next June. And of course, I pitched myself. But I was like, hey. This site, if you're going to do what you say you need to be, 
needs like a columnist that can talk about like race and sports and all these things who lives in Atlanta. Cause I know this, you know, the shop is going to be in DC. You live in DC, you're in charge now. But I was like, DC ain't the black Mecca anymore. It's not hard. And I was like, it's Atlanta. You need somebody there. He's like, hmm, I think about it. That was it. And we know what happened, happened in history and they launched it and all that. And so by that next year, after they had been out, or I think it might have been a couple months, I was like, all right. I felt like I had do all I could do in Delaware. Like I had been fighting. We were Gannett paper and begging and pleading to get my columns on the USA Today opinion page. And like nobody would show me any love. And I'm like, yo, I just won Philadelphia Association of Black Journalism chapter Journalist of the Year Award. Like, I can't get y'all running columns from all these other Gannett sites in the country on that page. And like, I can't get one. And I was like, all right, man, like I've hit my ceiling here. I gotta do something. So I'll refresh my resume. And I created a beat memo. And I got my best clips. And I made a list of all the publications. And I like cold called them through email. And I was like, this is who I am. This is my resume. This is my idea. Read this beat memo. Here are some clips. I think your publication should have someone to cover solely the intersection of race, sports, and social issues. Every progressive online outlet or paper you can think of outside of the New York Daily News, I pitched myself to. I didn't hear anything back. Tracy Grant, who I had met the year before at this talent dinner at NABJ in Minneapolis, was like the only one that responded. And she was like, oh, hey, Karen, thanks. We'll look over this. If we're interested, we get back to you. It's the only thing I got. I spent Remind like- Remind me where Tracy's at? Nowhere now, I don't think. <laughs> uh, after, after some of that stuff with the Washington Post that had happened. Um, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. There was a Washington Post at that yeah. time. She was one of the Emmys, right? Yep. Yeah, okay. So I had spent like that whole January of that year because, you know, I was one of them new year, new me. I'm going to start the year off doing this. Crickets all of January. I was crushed. And I was like, all right, this ain't happening. Uh I got pissed off and I was like, all right, ain't nobody paying attention to me. I'm going to write my way out of Delaware. Like I'm about to go crazy and just lock in and literally try the best stuff I can write in my life. That's going to make people nationally pay attention. Two months later, I'm in one of those editorial boards meeting. I come out and check my phone. I got like 15 missed calls, 30 texts and like a million notifications on my social media podcast. And they were like, yo, somebody put up a post on social media and was like, the New York Daily News is looking for someone who write about sports and racial issues. And I looked in the comments and it was a whole bunch of people putting my name. So my first call was to Leon Carter. And I was like, you used to run that shop, is this real? You know who in charge? And he was like, yeah, let me, let me make some calls, find out. He was like, it's legit. And I was like, all right, I'm about to apply. Do your thing. And he was like, I'll make sure you get looked at. Like a week or two later, I hopped on a train, went to New York, 
and had my interview with Eric Barrow, uh, my old boss. Um, got the job. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I had to go back to the office. And I walked in and I was like, I had already negotiated. I was moving to Atlanta. And I walked into the office and I was like, I want my title to be sports, racing, social issues columnist. And he was like, okay. And I was like, I figured out what I'm going to do with this role. And he was like, all right, what do you want to do? Like it. I was like, I'm going to do everything I think the undefeated should be doing, but isn't doing because I pitched this exact job to them and they didn't mm. like. And he was like, you know you're crazy for thinking you can take on an ESPN behemoth. And I was like, I know it doesn't make sense. But it makes sense in my mind. They're my sole competition. This is what I'm going to do. And so, like, as we were talking before we started this podcast, you mentioned something. It was like, people talk crazy in my mentions sometimes. They'd be like, who are you? Because of that job, you can look it up and do the research. I started at the New York Daily News in May 2017, April. I was the first person to nationally, as a columnist or a writer, have the sports racial, uh, sports race social issues title to make that my beat. If you look after me, came a role at the LA Times, a role at the Atlantic, a role at the Ringer, <laughs> um, a role at all these other publications, right? Dedicated to this. I was first. I was not the first person in this lane or in this genre because that is no disrespect to the OGs that came before me whose shoulders I stand on. But the first one to have this title that you see, oh, oh, they got a sports and culture writer now? They're all copycats of the things we did at the New York Daily News. And I was happy everybody else got looks and got jobs, and I had more lanes and more voices, especially when some of the Ladies start getting in because I just felt like I had to do everything there series for sports, even if I wasn't qualified. And I was like, yes, we got some more people in this lane. I had kicked down the door. But the thing that pissed me off and still pisses me off is that not one of those places called me to see if I would be interested to come there. And I was like, so y'all wanted copies of me, but didn't want the original? Cool. And so that chip on my shoulder I had from the basement, <laughs> I just put another chip on the other shoulder being like, oh, y'all, y'all still don't think I'm good enough to be the guy. Okay, all right. I know who your sports and culture uh, writer is. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, DeMar Hamlin just happened? Cool. We all about to write about this, right? I'm about to bust your, your person's ass. Oh, but I'm, something just I'm, happened I'm, in the NFL. I'm mm. about to bust your person's ass because you wanted the copy and not the original. But I still got the DMs from those editors telling me how much they love my stuff. Uh, but then went and hired a copy. 
But, you know, it's, it's, it's those things, like we said, to keep you motivated. Yeah, those chips in your shoulders, that's dope. That's who you are. I think that um, goes a long way to how your career keeps on progressing. If you don't have that, I don't know if you are where you are. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm still in that basement. <laughs> still, you know I'm, I'm still working at the Nike factory in Birch Run, Michigan. You know, it's it's wild, but this is a thread that has sort of popped up in other conversations we've had on this podcast yes. about how competitive you need to be yes. in these roles. And I don't think some people fully appreciate that or understand that. And you see those people languishing in some places and, and in some opportunities because this is incredibly competitive, particularly when you're starting to get toward a national level. And the um, opportunities seem to dwindle, you know, I, I mean, particularly in the newspaper business, but not necessarily in TV. And I, but it, it just feels like people don't recognize how difficult it is to one, land the role, but two, also to, you know, get the shine that you need in order to get your, your columns out there or, your, or, you, or you get that opportunity to write a column, even in some cases. Um, and so you've taken advantage of all of those opportunities you've had and, and really distinguished yourself. So, you know, much props to you. I'm, I'm interested in um, the transition to uh, Deadspin because so far you've described, I think, a, a fairly traditional route with respect to doing internships and doing newspapers. Yeah. And then now you're going to a site that is was a startup, essentially, was, you know, you know, made a splash for all you know kinds of different reasons but also um it's very different than a uh a, a, i don't know a relic in the new york daily news if you will <laughs> tell me about that tell us about that um the way i look at it and i had to figure this out because everything you just said you nailed it and it was a couple of years ago and i was like yes where you are matters especially when it comes to getting credentials and where they seat you when you cover a game, sure. <laughs> that lets you know where you work at matters because it's about the publication, not the person. Um, but more importantly, I was like, who values your voice is where I'm going to go. Who understands what I am and what I do who appreciates what I am and want to do, and honestly, who's going to let me cook? Because I don't care what publication it is. If, if they're, you know, at the top of the food chain, if you won't, you got a position, and I'm thinking about applying, and I'm just like, are they really going to let me get in my bag? Like, I understand, and you know, as a writer, you you take certain tones of that publication and that audience that publication has, but like you yourself, like I'm always going to be me. There are things I will write and say because I'm at Deadspin because it's Deadspin that I would never would have said at the Daily News or at the Shadow League or places before that. And wherever I end up next, later in my career, whatever, it will be different than how I said it at Deadspin. But <laughs> it's still going to be the same tone. I mean, the same voice it's still going to be authentically me. Headlines might be different. <laughs> the league might be a little different, but you still go and hear or read what I need to say in the way that I'm trying to address it. Cause in my style, is just necessarily me. So when the opportunity came up at Despin, 
I was all in mostly because I was getting back with Eric Barrow, my old editor at the New York News, and Jim Rich, who was mm-hmm. there. Uh, yeah, and I New was Daily like, News okay, yeah, right there. okay, cool. We're doing this rebranding of all this stuff that happened with Despin, which I had nothing to do with or knew yeah, any really thing about. But I yeah, was they got like, quite a reputation. yeah, but I was like. I know what these two people are about and I know how they view me. And it was really the first time, it was the second time in my career where somebody was just like, nah, like, gotta have you. Like, boom. Because Eric and myself were like the first two, not in terms of like paperwork hired, but we were the first two Jim Rich went to was like, one, two, gotta have you two. Or fill out any staff hires, like yeah, like y'all too. Yeah, um, that's that's beautiful, right? There. I mean, that's rare. It's especially it when you black, <laughs> and especially when the people that want you ain't black. It was like, oh, <laughs> it was like you brought me flowers. You want to romance me? <laughs> oh my god! It was, it was, yeah, it yeah, was yeah. like, oh, I, I feel so classy. Like it was like, okay, bet. Um, and you know, like the the, the ride at Desmond has was what it's been uh, over the last three years. We've had highs, we've had lows, trying to figure things out and how people view us and what it is. But like the thing that I've always appreciated was like the ability. It is one of my favorite singers and entertainers is Bobby Brown, and Bobby Brown's quote is always, "All I need is a stage." All I need is a platform to where the people I'm working with and for understand and appreciate my voice and what I'm trying to do. You give me that, damn all the other stuff. The people that don't want to hear it, they can leave. But the people that do want to hear it and the people outside, they're like, maybe I don't know about this. I will eventually get them in here to listen to this. Um, because I know what I can do. I've proven what I can do and I'm working every day at it to keep getting better and learning from the good and the bad from it. I think there's a lesson in that for the people who are going to listen to this episode. You said all you needed was a stage. You respected the platform in Michigan City. You could have said, I'll just hold it down so I get out of here. You respected the platform in Delaware. Um, Again, you could have said, as a stopover, I get out of here, but you respected the stage. So it doesn't really matter that New York Daily News, obviously, and Destin are much bigger. On all those stages, you still respected them the same way. It's a show, and I'll give you the best show possible, whether it be in Michigan City or yeah. a national city like Destin. It's a big deal that a lot of younger and older journalists understand. If you got your stage, just respect your stage. I think it's a big deal. Yeah, and go go to the stages that want you there. Mm. <laughs> Like when I took that internship in Salt Lake City, everybody was like, "You going to Utah?" I was like, "Yeah." And it's <laughs> a questionable move. Immediately, <laughs> I was like, "I'm out." Damn. Like there wasn't a second thought. Like, mm-hmm. "Yeah, I'm out." Like yeah. I uprooted my life in Atlanta to go to Syracuse for nine months, and I was just like, "Yeah, I'm out." <laughs> like I was in a whole relationship, and my ex is kind of like, "You just gonna go and leave?" And I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> um, when I got my first job, I was in Michigan City. I was in another relationship, and I like kind of put that relationship to the back burner because I was like, I got twelve months to get out of here. Can't be on the phone with your ass all night. 
got to work on deadline. So, like, you have to, like, go to the stages that are offered to you, respect them while you were there, and respect the communities and the readers that are there, especially Mm -hmm. if it's local before you get to national. Um, Because, like, you don't know where those those stages and those steps are going to lead you. Because when I was at the Daily News and I was able to negotiate working for the Daily News and got to move back to Atlanta, like, that blew my mind. And I vividly remember all the people that was like, why the hell is your black ass going to, going to Utah? Why the hell is your black ass going to Delaware? And, I, and then when I got back to Atlanta, I was like, Utah and Delaware got me back here. That's like, why. Yeah. <laughs> you go with, hey, man, it is like GPS. Follow the little arrow. If you put the right destination in, your car got a hey, you got the oil change on your car, you got the gas, the tire is good. Just follow the arrow on the destination. You do what you need to do, you will eventually go there. You might mess up on some turns along the way, but you will get there. Uh but you know, like you said, you nailed it earlier. We we got a generation that thinks you just supposed to start in New York City. They mm. think you just supposed to start nationally, and it's like, nah, because like you gonna start nationally and then you gonna mess up because you suck because no one told you that you suck and you're not gonna know how to recover because you don't appreciate the journey it takes to get national <laughs> and understand what's a risk, what's not a risk because you just think this should be handed to you and you don't understand the value of it because <laughs> mm-hmm. I like, yeah I would say this, but I'm not saying that because I know what saying that means. I've seen somebody else fail by saying that. I figured out how to say that in a different way that don't get me fired, that you don't know because you haven't been on this journey to get here. Yeah. The the blessing and the curse of, you know, digital outlets that are out today that are hiring younger journalists is that they do get to write about national issues. The curse, of course, is that they're not really adept to all of the potholes and the tricks and, and the things that sort of go along with it. And um, it sort of gives people a sort of false sense of confidence in terms of what their work is and, and how meaningful it is. Um, so I see both ends of that. I see the blessings, there are opportunities, but I see that, that you know, we're also got a lot of people and Keith Pompey talked about this in our first episode. They'll go in the locker rooms. They don't know what they're doing in there. They're in there. They're standing around. It's like, why are you here? Do you know what you're supposed to do when you get in the locker room? Are you just piggybacking on somebody else? Like, what are you doing? And I have been in the locker room with Keith Pompey because when I first got to Delaware as a sports writer, I was low key the little Sixers beat writer for a minute. If they had big games, because this is before the process, this is when they sucked, right? Right. Hey, this is like they. This is they were so bad then. But, like, that was my first experience getting, like, a lot of time in the NBA locker room. So I've been in that locker room with Keith. And, yeah, first couple of times, didn't know what I was doing. But I was smart enough to know, shut the fuck up, watch. All right, understand the landscape. Bet, game three, I got it from here. I know what to do. Instead of just going there and freeze up. There is value in shutting up and being quiet. Yeah, there's great value just, in it sometimes. Yes, there is. That's a life lesson. <laughs> and, not not just in your career, just in life. Life. So, 
I want to ask you about uh, some of the stories that you're covering recently. And one of the big ones that I think people are sort of, I guess, attuned to you with right now is the Deion Sanders ongoing coverage. And this is interesting to me because, it, you know, if you read your columns like I do, um, you know that there are valid criticisms of Deion Sanders that need to be aired out. Yes. They just, there just are. And, I, and I'll go back to the uh, most sort of really ridiculous sort of attributes that he seeks in his players, particularly his quarterbacks versus his defensive line. Yeah. I think he said something just outlandish with respect to, you know, wanting a uh, defensive lineman with like, you know, single mother household kind of thing. Gotta it get was it. just really weird. That, that was cool. Got to get it. Single mama. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Quarterback from this, a two-parent home, but yeah, yeah. Your, your son's the quarterback. Five GPA. Your yeah, son's his, the quarterback, but he doesn't come from a two-parent home. Okay, there's it, a whole lot of weirdness, and so there's a lot of um, little factoids like that and criticisms that you've had of him that I think, um, in the sort of grand scheme, I think people are sort of like glossing over. Because I look at your mentions and I think to myself, "Are y'all reading him, or are y'all just it's observing?" Just, yeah. He's writing about. <laughs> Like, tell me about how that experience is for you, because, again, you know, forget Dion for a second, but it's just this whole experience of people interacting with you, but not necessarily actually engaging with what you're saying. It's the hardest part about our job, because our job, writing is hard. And not only is writing hard, for the most part, we have to take complex things. Doesn't matter if it's breaking down the coverage in sports or politics or some educational reform bill or some legal precedent, we have to take things that are very hard to digest, digest them ourselves and deliver it to an audience and readers who can easily digest it no matter their educational background or intelligence level. And then on top of that, people don't read. (laughs) So we've done all this and we do it at a high level and then you don't read it because you stopped at the Twitter caption. (laughs) Or the headline. Or the headline. And and listen, I, I was going through and I was trying to, in preparation for this interview, I just was looking at the headlines that you've written about Deion Sanders. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's in combination with you and the team. It's mostly it's me. Been, <laughs> it's mostly you? Okay. All right. So uh, Deion Sanders' ego already causing unnecessary drama at Jackson State. I mean, this is just a selection. Deion Sanders doesn't get it. Evergreen, which I thought was funny just to add that in. Deion Sanders can't make up his mind about how long he'll be at Jackson State. Swack Media Day it was a peep show, and it wasn't just Deion's hissy fit. I mean, it goes on and on. It, it gets worse, actually, in some moments. <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is, you sort of mentioned this earlier, you know, maybe it's dead spin and sort of the edginess and what people are aware of it in terms of how it operates. But also it's, um, you know, these are a little bit of a reflection of how you feel about in some of these particular situations. And I, the hissy fit one, you know, it's such a, I love that word, by the way, hissy, just getting that in a headline is great. But th- that one was actually like, it was a really serious story about him, I believe, ejecting a black reporter or banning a black reporter from being able to uh, go to uh, their press conference day. And then, of course, he got mad about, you know, being called by his first name. And it was, there was like a whole lot going on there. And people may look at that headline and think, man, they just, 
they just haters over there at Deadspin. And they may not hear all of what he did that sort of inspired that. that and so I'm just wondering what your, what your take is on that. That day is the even worse than his recruiting philosophy. Even worse than the, oh, the air is so much cleaner. There's no crime in Colorado moment. The, sh- the streets are clean. Air yeah. is clean. What's that mean? Worse than the, <laughs> I'm bringing Louie. Y'all better jump in that portal um, to win. This, meet your quarterback. Mind you, Shadur Sanders was committed to be deep on the depth chart at FAU before he went to play for his father when he was guaranteed the starting job. So I'm always like, y'all say he's good, but I'm like, is he good? Or was he just gift wrapped an opportunity that he's shown he didn't deserve? And I've seen the numbers. He has some good highlights, but I'm also like, you couldn't beat North Carolina Central or South Carolina State. How the hell are you going to win in the Pac-12? On the biggest game of the, in the sport for that level. Yeah, yeah, and you went 0-2 in that game. Um, but right. Those are facts that people get upset about. Um, but that day, that media day, because, you know, y'all had Kari Thompson on here, right? Yeah. And Kari Thompson got that job down in Jackson because Rashad Milligan left. Rashad Milligan was the black reporter who got banned by Dion. Nobody wanted to pay attention because, like, I broke that news in that column because the news of the day was, do you call Nick Saban Nick? Don't call me Dion. And that became this big story, which is also really funny when you fast forward a couple, what, a year later when Nick Saban punked Dion and was like, oh, they paying players. And basically accused them of cheating um, when he signed uh, Hunter. And then Dion acted like he got all mad. And I remember you could find a tweet and I was like, basically like, Dion ain't really mad. Watching a couple months, they're gonna be back in the Affleck commercial. And then a couple <laughs> months later, what did we see? They was money back talks, in the man. Affleck commercial. And I was just like, this, this dude, money. yeah, like it, it's <laughs> if you just pay attention to the facts, you can see how phony he is. Um, but yeah, Rashad Milligan got banned, who was the JSU reporter at the paper down there. Because if you read my column where I have all the links to the stories from their paper, and I got quotes from the leadership of the local paper on all of this thing, so it was confirmed. Um, And I have talked to Rashad about this. And he has thanked me because he was like, you were the only voice who advocated for me and who tried to tell this story. There was a situation down there where they had a player at Jackson State who had been involved in some domestic incident. And he was getting ready to go to court. And he was getting ready to plead guilty. They're doing all their digging and reporting on it. They get wind that these questions are going to get asked. If I remember this correctly, Jackson State's stance and Dion's stance was, oh, He's down here, but he's not working out with the team. He's not really on the roster. If you go back to my column and find the link, Jackson, 
the, the paper and Rashad and them had done their homework and they had talked to the player's high school coach. And there's a quote from the high school coach that was like, oh, no, I just talked to him on the phone the other day. He's practicing with Jackson State. So they were getting ready to show up at, at Swag Media Day like, we got questions because <laughs> we, got, we got the information. You've been lying. We got you. They shut them down and they banned them. So all that stuff about black people and HBCUs that Dion be preaching. The only school that gave you an opportunity to be a head coach without any head coaching experience after you had ran a shit show of a, a school called Prime Prep that if you read Candace Buckner's great story for the Washington Post, she did a feature on this and tracking down some of those kids who played for Deion and Prime Prep and how they had their lives and, and athletic careers messed up because they were getting scholarships and got scholarships snatched just because Prime Prep was such a mess. And the number of times Deion got fired at Prime Prep later to then go ahead and be a, a, a offensive coordinator at a high school in Texas. The program was so dirty, he was an offensive coordinator at. They got kicked out of their conference. How bad does a high school football program have to be to get kicked out of a conference in Texas? Where Texas high school football is the most important thing in the state. Mm, and now yeah. this black school gave you the opportunity to be a head coach because no one else on earth did. And you got a black beat reporter. Ask how many black coaches on the power five FCS or HBCU level have been blessed with a black beat reporter in their first time on the job. It is not many. And you banned him for doing yeah. his job. And let me let me just that say is this Deion, that is who Deion Sanders is. Let me just say this, and, I, and I'm a, I'm a huge Deion fan for you know from his playing days in San Francisco, um, won a Super Bowl with the guy. Um, you know, I was a big fan of the Niners. So so I I go far that far back in terms of just fandom and and just sort of support for him. Mm -hmm. But all of these incidents are absolutely troubling, and if you're thinking about it from um. Uh, the, the coach's perspective from Jackson State's perspective, there's an easy way to answer the questions about this quarterback that doesn't require uh, banning a reporter, which makes it worse in a lot of respects. And then on top of that, and, and just, just in terms of a historical perspective, like there's a, way too many HBCUs that have problems with the press at all. And, and this, this is just, you know, a reflection of that. It feels like to me where it's just like, wait a second. I want to ask you some critical questions. We don't want to talk about, it. we don't even want to deal with yes. you anymore. You know, whether it's the student newspaper and I, you know, we've certainly come up with, um, I'm thinking of Talia Buford from way back when, um, her issues <laughs> when, when she was at a HBCU, like all of these things, like the, there is always a problem whenever somebody's challenged within the power structure whether it's at Bethune-Cookman, which I know you also got into a little bit as well. So it's, it, it's, it's very interesting dynamic, but at the same time, there was an easy way to diffuse that, which was answer the questions honestly. Um, and yet they took the hard way and the most 
I want to say embarrassing way for themselves. Yeah, because the thing that like irked me the most, which is why, like, let's be honest, I'm on Dion's ass. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just because like it's Dion, it gets high readership. This is a high profile athlete coach situation. Is that I am an HBCU and alum. And being an HBCU and alum and dealing with people's views on HBCUs who did go there, even if you are black, like it is one of those things that I don't care how it sounds, you ain't one of us. Because it is a very you being black does not give you the right to understand our 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 culture because you don't get it's literally one of those things unless you been on on the yard not a campus and graduated you do not understand how hbcus work and then it will even blow your mind when you realize is talk to any hbcu alum there is hbcu culture and then it's that hbcu culture every hbcu has something they do and a certain way that they rock that no other HBCU rocks in their way. Like that is that school signature style. Oh, we have, we can all come together like a family union under this HBCU umbrella because we do all these things alike. But fam, you, they do some stuff we ain't doing at Morehouse and Spelman. Clark is across mm-hmm. the street, literally across the street. Literally across the street. They do some stuff we don't do. And so for you to just be like, I'm black, I understand it. No, the fuck you don't. (laughs) You have no idea how this works. And so with this whole situation with Dion, it's like, dude, you jumped in this game trying to be so full savior and you don't know how it works. Same thing when I wrote about uh, Makuma Kerr at Howard. Or the rest of these like so-called celebrity athletes that was coming in and like save HBCUs, and I'm like, it don't work that way because at the heart of this Dion thing or the McCormick Court situation at Howard was this, and Dion understood it when he got there because when he left, all these stories and rumors came out, and all you know the people who just thought I was the worst person in the world were hitting me up and calling me, yeah. Yeah, you heard these rumors about how, like, uh, Dion brought all this money in and they not letting him have the money for his program, and that's why he left. And I was like, yeah, that's how HBCUs work. There has never been an HBCU in modern times in which athletics has meant more than academics, tradition, or the culture. So You yes, couldn't afford Dion, to have it that way. You brought all of this money in. Appreciate you. Jackson State's appreciate you. But if you thought for one minute that they was going to be like, hey, take all this money for uniforms and for food after the game instead of paying professors and maintaining these dorms, you have lost your motherfucking mind. Because that's just not how it works. Athletics is never going to be at the top of the totem pole at HBCUs. That is not why you come here. And I don't even care if your HBCU is good in athletics. It's still when Antoine Bethea was at Howard. Find somebody who was on the yard where Antoine Bethea was there and ask them, did 
was Antoine Bethea the big man on campus? He had the most juice? Nope. It was some dude on SGA. It was some dude who was Greek. It was some party promoter. Or just some cool-ass dude that all the chicks liked and everybody wanted to be like. I don't care if you're a starting quarterback, if you should do a Sanders. If you one of these star basketball players on these HBCU teams that make a run in March Madness, you are never going to be the guy on the yard of the HBCU because you will never have more juice than the drum major. Ever. <laughs> Ever. Man, you will never is... have more juice than the SGA president. And, Ever. and this goes to what you said, that, you know, they gave him an opportunity, and this is, was this was the opportunity for him. This is all he had available to him that we know of, mm-hmm. um, and so it's difficult in that respect. And I listen. Um, there's a whole lot to it that I feel like, um, or good, I should say, that came of his experience there in terms of exposure, in terms of bringing more eyeballs onto HBCU football. I love the fact that my man. Uh, Stephen Gather over at HBCU Game Day was having a good time. Listen. I love that there's other HBCU-centric uh, publications that are out there now. Um, but it was always going to end. I, stuff. I don't know if Gather is on y'all list to get on here. Gotta be. But I do not. There was a job opening like a year or two ago, and someone called me. and was like, oh, you know, someone might be looking for an HBCU. And I'm like, Stephen Gather. And I was like, the work that dude has put in, and it has been highlighted by this Dion situation and the Ed Reed BS that happened in Bethune. And I was like, I know that's his baby and he built it. And I want him to do whatever he wants to do with it, but I want somebody to go get him and put him on the biggest platform on earth and pay him because that man deserved it and he has done the work. Yeah. True entrepreneur right there running right. HBCU game day. Right. And, they, and they've got a, the platform has just changed just in the last couple of years. It's just looking good. So uh, big shout out to him. You know, while we have you, I'd love to talk about one of the other interesting stories. I, I know we were over our t- on our time, but I'd love to get Y'all into it. Y'all keep listening. Y'all ain't got nothing to do. Keep listening. It's good <laughs> shit. All the listeners, keep listening. Exactly. Let, exactly. let that shit play. <laughs> it's not Let's like this another to- podcast that's going to have a black journalist on yeah. for an hour anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Can't get this exactly. anywhere else. We're pulling back the curtain a little bit, so yeah. So, so the there was a story from 2020 that you guys did, <laughs> Rachel Nichols' story. And it was, I don't know, benign at first, if you will. It was kind of like, what happened? What was, what, you know? It, it had potential to be explosive. Um, I saw it, and I, I read it, and I was like, hmm, um, weird. I'm going to move on. And and that's partly because it was like there was you know it was an allegation that somebody was like almost like an Aaron Andrews situation. It was the weirdest peeping, shit ever. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of peeping um, Rachel Nichols while she was in her hotel room and she said something, but you guys at that point did not um, detail what she had said or anything of that nature. So it kind of moved on. A year later, New York Times drops a bombshell out of nowhere. I would never forget um, waking up that morning being like, "What the fuck?" Yeah. <laughs> And and they detail what was said in that conversation. They also had a much more, I guess, expansive video. Um, you did a great job of explaining this in uh, both a column and a podcast the day after where you talked on the Ladies Room podcast, which I, I think is no longer um, functioning, but still available for folks. And we'll link it in the show notes. 
about sort of the reporting process that went into covering this situation. And if I could boil this down, uh, Rachel Nichols says something on this tape that appears to diminish uh, Maria Taylor, who was then at ESPN. And it blows up. Everybody sort of picks up on it. Can you give us a sense of your role in the initial reporting, which has like four bylines on it, by the way? So this is what really happened. One night, I get a text from a number I don't have. And it's the four clips in the column I posted. It is, all you see is a chair. You see a woman walking in the background. It's like, hey, I was watching the jump yesterday. That looks like the setup Rachel Nichols be having. Wait, I know that voice. That's Rachel Nichols. But she's on the phone in the background. And it's like her setup like I have now, if you would just see me walking in the background. And it's like it's catching her audio. And you just have that shot of the chair and what's behind her. And you don't see her unless like she walks back and forth behind this chair. And you hear kind of what she says about Maria Taylor, but we don't have like the full quote. I just get these four little short video segments. And I'm like, and it's like late at night and they just hit my phone and I'm looking around like, what the fuck? (laughs) Who set me up? Like, what is this? Um, And that's kind of how it started. That's why my name is on the byline of the original story. Because you received the because video. Because I received it. I didn't, I didn't write the headline. I didn't write the subhead. I didn't write a single word of the story. <laughs> but you got it rolling, though. Yeah, because I received the thing. Right. Uh, people were like, oh, you wrote it. And I'm like, I, I, the first time I read the entirety of that story was when the public read the entirety of that story. I remember I had a draft up. I had that I had got sent and I was going through the draft and I had pointed out some things like I think we should change this this and this and I remember being like an okay and I'm waiting for the updated version and then it's live (laughs) so the first time I read it in its entirety is when it was live and I was like oh this thing's out of here we're going to see where this goes but Leading up to it, the day before that day and the day after, I had spent, like I explained in the column, like doing my reporting on the back end. So I called everybody I knew. Some people went on the record, some didn't. Some just gave me anonymous quotes. Some just gave me backgrounds. All the sources I had were really, really good sources. And I basically kind of was like, what's the word on Rachel Nick? Yeah, it's out there now, but like, what's the real word? And so, like, I'm getting all this information. Um, I had met Maria before, and I'm kind of like, oh, all right, from what we got from this, what she said on this, and what I've gotten from all of these people and former colleagues and co workers of her. All right, I got the story, I got the column. Bet, let's wait to something because this was like the biggest story of the week when it came out and we're like I'm like oh listen I know exactly what to do I spent all these days reporting on this when the rest of the audio comes out because it's got to come out now right we all like yeah this would be boom 
pull that, bam, we got it. It never came. <laughs> Mm. And like for the first couple of weeks, I'm just like, all right, like, then it went away. Then the sports calendar goes the way it goes. I still got all this stuff like written in my head and still got like all the quotes, anonymous stuff. And I'm just like, okay, all right. Months, months, months. I didn't forget about it. Just kind of put it to the side. Like if you are a journalist, sometimes there are stories you have. That it might not, you might be waiting something. It might not be the right time of the news peg, but you just got it sitting on the side. People think sometimes you just get information. It's just like, nah, most, some stuff just cooks for a long, long time. Or like we are here, people in Hollywood, like I was waiting to write that script for 20 years. Sometimes yeah. it's the same way for us, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then like a year later, I literally wake up one morning, check Twitter. New York Times, boom, and I'm reading the story like, oh, they got what I was waiting for. Oh, they got all of it. Oh, shit, this is what I needed. And so I'm reading it, and I'm finally getting what I needed from them. Then I call the source at the New York Times, and I'm like, how? And it was like, oh, we had like a person working on this for like a year. And I was like, we got like <laughs> 10 people here. I couldn't afford to work on this solely for a year right. and have a whole staff of editors. Like we just didn't, we don't have the manpower of the New York Times. We didn't forget about this story. I didn't. And ha- so that comes out. So I'm like, all right. Now I'm going to do some inside baseball, tell people what I've always known and give it context and why it came to be. And wrote the story, wrote the column. Some people, small amount of people was like, I get it. The majority of people was like, oh, so you sat on the story and didn't say anything? And I was like, I didn't sit on the story. I didn't have all the information. I need the complete story. for yeah, like I had now. like 90% of it, but if I was like, if I would have ran this a year ago, and like I think I had a line there and was like, we thought we knew what the rest of the tape was going to say. And what I thought it said, it actually did say. But if it hadn't, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. I'm out of here. Reputational risk Listen, to go with with uh, reputation. With so little, I, yeah. Ain't nobody hiring me no more. Right, because I said yeah. this happened and this was on the tape, and if the tape would have came out and that wasn't on the tape because nobody else had access to it and it went on there, I'm done. And here's the the the, the exclusive I give y'all. I had a verbal deal with Maria Taylor's one of her former representatives that after all of that went down. I was supposed to be the first person she was talking to. What happened? After all it went down and she left ESPN and went to NBC because uh, she had an agent and she had another person working up for something else. She ended that relationship. So my direct connect who had gave me the verbal and the word and was the go-between between me, me and Rick. Because I had Maria's number. I could have just hit her. 
I think I sent it to her, but like I was like, I'm not gonna just go out the blue. We've met, we chopped it up a couple times, but I'm just like, all right, I'm gonna follow protocol on this one. Once that relationship ended and went away, that verbal agreement for me to be the first one for her to give this exclusive and talk to went away. And I knew that in the back of my head. So the whole time when everybody was pissed off at me, even folks in the industry, like, you sat on this, you fumbled this. You didn't do it right. I'm like, all right. In a couple of weeks, when I drop this exclusive, you see, y'all ain't gonna have nothing to say. That business relationship ended, and I never got to do it. And I was just like, damn. And now she's never gonna talk about that again in public. And I don't blame her. Why would she? And why, why would, would she? Know? I wouldn't do it. Right. Well, this now. is this is what's so interesting to me because um, there's again there's so many details within the story, and I think a lot of people who are paying attention to this or probably already aware of some of them, particularly what was reported in the New York Times. If not, I'll just link it. Um, but you guys talked about this in that Ladies Room podcast about the sort of jockeying that goes on in the background in, in a place like ESPN. And, you know, we've talked on this show already about competition in this business. I feel like that was one of the aspects of this. I don't know if it was talked about or discussed enough in terms of internet chatter, Twitter chatter, et cetera, because there's this piece that I feel like has been de-emphasized, the, the piece about Rachel Nichols' contract, et cetera, et cetera. And like, that wasn't in the conversation. I think so much of us, myself included, were focused on the part where there's this sort of implication that Maria Taylor wasn't talented or was getting something um, that didn't, earn. didn't have anything to do with her talent. And I think, you know, she's just catching strays at this point. Like, it's like, why? Is, why? <laughs> and so Rachel Nichols has apologized for that, I think, a few times. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, wait a second, did, was it in her, was it in Rachel Nichols' contract to, to, you know, host the NBA shows and do the final stuff? Like, what, what, what was the situation there? Cause it feels like this is about, uh, positioning and power and about everything other than, what we're all focused yeah. on. Um, at the heart of it, it was because if you go back and watch the audio or read the quotes, what I got from it was this is about two women working in the male dominant field. One was at the top of the game. It was another one, a younger one coming for that spot. And it basically was like because this is kind of like the feeling I got from people in my reporting. They're like, it wasn't about the fact that she was black. It wasn't about the fact that she was a woman. It was someone trying to retain power at the top spot and doing whatever they needed to do to keep power at the top spot. And funny enough, like when all this was going on, I was getting texts from people like, I think y'all got played. It might have been Rachel Nichols that sent it to you. Maybe it was someone else. Because of I the way the text read, um, the back and forth I had, I still have the thread in my phone. Like I will keep it forever. Um, the back and forth between me and that person, like I couldn't tell if it was one person or two people because that disposition. So you still don't know who it is? Still don't know who it is. Their disposition switched at some point in the conversation. I don't know if I'll ever know, but it's still in my phone and I vow to myself 
you you gotta drop that number in Cash App and see who it is. <laughs> drop, drop it in Venmo and see Venmo, if it pulls up. Cash App. <laughs> uh, Investigation, man. What's the man. other one? Um, WhatsApp. Like, see what's up. And I was like, one day, like, I want an old school payphone that doesn't have any attachment to me on it and call it and wants to see who answers. And like for the last like two years, every time I'm in my text, I'll be like, I got to call this number one day. But I was like, I don't want to call it from a number that's attached to me. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, my number is very much attached to me now. Because you know, when you call people, the city origin city comes up. There ain't too many people in this industry from Saginaw, Michigan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's only yeah. one person from Saginaw, Michigan that was in the middle of this story, too. So I'm like, it's a dead giveaway. And I'm always, I was just be looking around like, man, I need a. Oh. I remember I was somewhere and I was like, ooh, I could use their phone, but I was like, ah, it's gonna come up in Chicago. It they can't know be I you live in Chicago. Like it can't be me. Like it I can't need, be you. Someone else makes the call and you I, like listening in. I need to create a number that's gonna like say I'm in like Texas <laughs> calling from it to figure out like who's on the other end of this phone. Like I need um, the folks from Catfish. I need to call Nell from Catfish yeah. <laughs> to help me out. But this, this is this is the thing, though, and and this is you know, it's super interesting that you still don't know who that is. But also the, I guess the allegation that's out there, whether or not it's somebody that played you. I mean, you implied it yourself within your column, and and so I'm wondering, like, but yeah, like, I don't do run away from that? the allegations that me and us might have got played because yeah, if I, sh- I think no, I think if you're if you think you can't get God, that's when you get God. <laughs> like, I live by the creed that anybody can get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe I did get God. Maybe we didn't. I don't know. Well, I wouldn't say it's you because it's more of a dead spin thing because, again, <laughs> but even you I'm in, that, I'm that involved, initial story. Yeah, I'm involved yeah. in it. So, if, hey, I'm not going to – If I, 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 I don't run from the smoke. If I got to take the L, I, I'll take the L. Uh, and won't run from it. And I'll own that L. But like I said earlier, I learned from L's. And best yeah. believe I have made it my notion to never let something like that happen again. Uh, and that was a thing for me. Like It was a bad week. The first time it came out, the second time. But well, it's two bad yeah. weeks in my career. I'll take the, that. The, the couple things that I, I, I take away from that time period... Um, was the timing of the story, right? It just sort of drops about three weeks before or whatever it is. Some, not that long before Maria Taylor's contract. It's in out. the bubble when nothing's going on in sports, right. but this. Um, yeah. And so there's all these sort of different things that are sort of up in the air. And it just, to me, it just felt like somebody is, you know, hitting the button that says, let me influence this in some kind of way. And that's where I felt like, and this I was mentioning to this when we were sort of setting up um, or in the DMs the other day, I was just saying, like, I feel pretty strongly that the New York Times, like, they don't talk enough or they don't explain enough in their reporting process, like how they allow things to influence them mm-hmm. and, and, and talk about motivations of people when they do report on things. And so when I said, you know, I felt like Deadspin might have been more judicious, particularly in that first story which is to say, let's re- withhold things 
you know, I'm not saying I agreed with that the headline, by the way, that you know, creep, right. you know, and all I, that. So I, I don't know if I agree with all that, but I, I do agree with the sort of let's hold back a little bit until we know more, mm-hmm. because I think that sort of being judicious in that way allows for you to then come back and do some more reporting and then follow up and, and continue to follow up as you learn more. Whereas in the New York Times, I felt like like it's clear that there was somebody that was trying to influence who gets into what roles mm-hmm. and uh, in terms of like whether or not, you know, that was going to knock Rachel down a peg or uplift Maria. And one of the things that was great about the conversation you had on the ladies room was that there's a sort of recognition that actually none of this helps Maria. Absolutely none of it. All of this coming out was harmful to her in some kind of way. And it didn't benefit her in any way. She's catching strays nonstop through this whole process, whether it's somebody being overzealous trying to help her or whether it's somebody in, you know, Rachel's camp trying to, you know, position herself as the sole, you know, NBA host, if you will, there at the worldwide leader. And then contextually, this is also about ESPN and allowing this situation to happen, right? This is their fault. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. And that... And, that that was Sorry, the, the only things that bothered me about it was that like the perception, like you said, that we weren't judicious at it, that like we just the initial story happened and we were just like oh that's over, um because that was never the case. I was a little bit irked at like people I know in this industry that their initial reaction was just like, oh, you dropped the ball, you fumbled, like you did this. And I was like, I think my name, I felt like Marlo Stanfield on that last, like, mm. <laughs> season of the while. I was like, no, my name is my name. Like, y'all play on my, like, y'all, like, <laughs> y'all know what I've done. Like, why would I do this? And I'm like, I, that woman, her, Maria has this, like, I don't know if she still has, she's had, like, this summer program in Atlanta uh, with all that, like, these aspiring, like, young athletes and different industries they used to try to get in. And I was like, I've been to it. I've spoken to it. I was, like, I was there to be, like, working with, you know, her and Talia Wilkins when they were both at ESPN. And I was just like, no, like, I stand and support that black woman. Like, why would I take any farm like Y'all have read the things I have written. Y'all have heard the things I have said on CNN, MSNBC, on TV. Like, why would I do a complete about face one time for Rachel Nichols? Mm. Like, why? That 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 don't make sense. Um, but the thing that irks me the most is that, like, we're all journalists. Um, so when you're a journalist, like, you watch journalism movies, like Spotlight, or like uh, She Said with the Harvey Weinstein thing. And I was just like, I wish we had a big enough staff where we had a team dedicated just to that. Sure. Or the resources that Times had, where they could have been like, hey, Karn, you got this. Just work on this for as long as it takes and get it done. Um, Because I think as good as the New York Times is, like, and I praise them and their writer the day that dropped. And I was like, this is excellent, outstanding reporting. Shouts out to the to the writer, the editing staff, and them for doing this. I will always feel like right or wrong, just just the way my mind works. If I got that same opportunity with those same bells and whistles, at minimum, I would have done that good. At minimum, um, just because like 
I had a somewhat connection to get the exclusive at one point. Like I had stuff in my back pocket nobody had. But in this game, since we talked about Dylan, we all know. We've all had huge stories that fell apart or something that just didn't go right. Man, give you another exclusive. We had a story last year that me and a colleague were working on at Deadspin that we we were in the red zone. It was like first and goal from the seven (laughs) from winning the sports journalism Super Bowl. And I remember like it was over the Christmas break telling my dad I took, you know, I'm working back at home doing it. And he was like, what are, like, what are you working on? And I was like, he was like, mom, like, this is G14 classified. I'll tell you. And I told him what it was. And he kind of got it. Like my dad's like 73, you know, they, they, they don't, I'm like, he kind of got it. But I was just like, all right. I was like, if this story comes out and stuff stays the way it is, I was like, Pulitzer is undeniable. I was like, if this happens, I'm going to be on TV every day, all day for like two weeks straight. He was like, oh, 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 that big. And I'm like, yeah, like <laughs> any any award you can think about, we're about to win. Going to be on TV every day. I'll be able to write my check to go to any place I want to. And I was like, we're going to change sports forever if this comes out. And we're going to change this league forever. There's going to be a documentary about this. And we didn't throw a pick in the red zone. <laughs> Some catastrophic stuff out of our control happened to where we just have set it to the side and been judicious because telling the half story of this without having all the T's crossed and I's dotted would have been career suicide. And then from there, it kind of went to the wayside. Um, but it, it was like the best analogy I can give for listeners who are not in the game would be like, like, well, all right, what does that mean? If you ever watched Law & Order SVU and Benson and Stabler had this great case and then at the last minute, the victim or the witnesses decided not to testify and they disappeared. It's like that. And when that happens, it don't matter what you know. It don't matter what you feel to be true. If you don't have the piece that can nail it and prove it to make it undoubtable, can't run it. Can't close. Can't, can't do it. That sucks. Oh, That's all you oh, say. It, it sucks. bothers me <laughs> because because you know, because you know, because you know what the what the alternative the heart is. of it. I see them on TV all the time, and I'll be like, yeah. "I know what you did. You know, I know what you did because you called us. <laughs> I have the recordings, but I can't tell y'all what you did." <laughs> And that's mm. journalistic integrity because you really yeah. could have said the hell oh, with it. Let's blab it and listen, see what happens. The places we called and the conversations we had, we know we got your ass. Right. Yeah, I'm on the right track, but yeah. that's right. I respect that. Yeah, just following up here, but you know, 
look much love to Maria Taylor and her new role, newish role now. It's been more than a year, I believe. And um, you know, to Malika Andrews and, and the ESPN folks. I mean, they have dealt with, I think, and you know this better than I, uh, pretty seismic shifts in terms of culture, in terms of leadership, in terms of all kinds of things at ESPN. And uh, that's difficult to navigate as black yeah, journalists. Yeah, and um, and I do want to acknowledge that the one person that we also know that was initially um, disciplined and that was a black woman. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this has affected a lot of people yeah. in this, you know, so well, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm hoping yeah, yeah. the best for all. Shout out to Malika. Shout out to all the black folks at ESPN. I am still banned from appearing on that network uh, for calling out the powers of be at ESPN for not supporting black folks over there. And uh, shout out to Maria always for being like the only black person at NBC yeah. since Mike Tirico says he's Italian, not black. So. What? <laughs> I don't know if I can unpack that. That's <laughs> what the man podcast. said. That is a direct <laughs> quote. I heard it and I was, I immediately did one of those, you know, what? Like, I'm just going, it's, I'm going to walk past it. I'm not going, I'm not going to get into it. With, with, with Dolphins head coach Mike McDaniel, he said, I'm human, but my dad's black. And I was like, all right, all right. We, Mike Tirico 2.0. Here we go. Here yeah. we go. Listen, one of the things I saw when I was doing prep for this um, was that you guys never followed up with the, um, uh, Rachel Nichols comments after she joined Showtime and, you know, she did the whole sit down with, uh, what's his name? Uh, Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson. I was and so, so there was an opportunity. I was funny. so, that was corny. I washed my hands of them after that. I uh, was corny. And, and I understood that, especially for Matt, she was the one that kind of gave, him his shot at TV and had held him down. But like, and this is one of the reasons why I think 99.9% of podcasts shouldn't exist. People be like, what about the good ones? I'm like, yeah, yeah, like this show is like in the point zero ones because it's like a billion podcasts on earth. We don't need this many. If you've ever been a fan of All the Smoke and you watch All the Smoke, I was. And you've seen some of the things, especially Steven Jackson has evolved in, um, especially if we go back some of the activism with George Floyd and how much of a voice he was in that. A lot of the stuff and the things they talk about deal with blackness and the upliftness, upliftment of black people, right? But yet, I understand personally or professing what they would have did to you. You can't say and do all the things y'all have done and say, y'all believe this, but then yet be the springboard for this white woman's redemption story that involved agree to disagree in the belittlement of black women. So either two things are true. All the stuff you said about black people was fake and you don't mean it. Or all the stuff you said about black people was true. You do mean it, but you didn't include black women. It's one of those two things. And that's not me making an assumption or pinning something on you that isn't true. 
that is me taking what you have said and done and being smart enough to realize, oh, then it's either this or that. I'll let y'all decide which one it is. But you have Ooh. shown us through your actions and words what this is about and what y'all are about. And the bottom line but is we want a show and Showtime said we need to do it and we're going to do it for Showtime. But Showtime's paying us. Yeah. Well, that's understandable. But let, let's let's step back real quick here to what you just said earlier, which was that, you know, this again, and I implied it and I think you were sort of in agreement with me that this feels more about a power struggle, more about jockeying. And if you recognize that, you know, again, ESPN put it in a situation where it felt like it was a zero sum game, one or the other. That's not a good thing. That's on them. So if you are Steven Jackson or Matt Barnes or Showtime or whatever, and you see that, do you really hate on Rachel for it? Do you do you do you put that in a situation where you got to? There's a flip side to this, of course. It's like, do you have to be the one to rehabilitate her? No, that, that is the choice. <laughs> but that is that's the choice, right? But the, the the question is though, why why are we sort of making this the, an either or? Like, I don't know if if that's uh, appropriate either. Given that, I feel like everything that we've heard that's come out of this feels like people are fighting to stay on top and saying things that, again, subjective and turned out incredibly damaging for themselves and in Rachel's case saying that, you know, whatever the frustration is, don't take it out on me mm-hmm. um, as if Maria Taylor doesn't deserve based on her talent, which she, she is incredibly talented. Like it feels like to me that we're still sort of boiling it down to that rather than this other larger issue of power and who gets opportunities and why can't we all have a seat at the table I mean, they have these countdown shows, these, these, the jump, whether it's the NBA countdown or whatever the show is, and they put four chairs up there and three of them are athletes or, two, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's just like, there's an opportunity for more chairs at this table. We, can, we, can we understand that? Can we respect that? And, and not that only to me is, are there a lot of chairs at the table, usually the people in their chairs are terrible and shouldn't be at the table. Like, let's, like, like we watch the NBA daily programming. A lot of people sitting in them chairs that have no business sitting in them chairs, and 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 and, and I understand that Stephen Jackson and Matt Barnes probably had to make a business decision with that. Yeah, in your life as yeah. a human being, in this media game, especially when you're black, you have to learn when to pick and choose your battles. Right, I totally understand that. But with that, and as I said earlier, learning when to be quiet and deciding when to speak up, you have to own when you said something when you shouldn't have and when you were quiet when you should have spoken up. And so if they did the best thing for them and their career and their families, I get it. But that also comes with the fact that you got to own the fact that you became the launching pad for this white woman to relaunch her rehabilitation story for the third, second, third time in her career. Because y'all remember, remember when she got fired from the CNN show and then she had to go back to ESPN and build it back up. And then now it's like, 
This was yeah, already CNN. a very privileged person <laughs> yeah. who got a head start in this game. And still getting another shot. And, and like, you can't be on there talking about white privilege. And you're privileging whites. <laughs> yes. But I'm yes, that, but but, I, but after this, I'm glad you're bringing it home. People, I'm glad you're bringing it home. It's going to be the people in my mentions going off at yeah. me, like, "Oh, you hate her," and I'm just like, mm, mm, mm. as I out. do, as I do, anytime I do uh, a TV or a podcast or radio appearance or in my columns, and I upset people because, like, yes, I do dabble in the areas that 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 push people in sore spots. There's one thing you can never say about me. If I am going to present a take and it may be contrarian, you are not mad at me because I made something up. You are mad at me because I presented it in a way that is undeniable and you hate the fact that I did it in a way that makes it inescapable from you. So you'll be like, uh-uh, you said this, but I'm like, that's a direct quote. But what about that? Google that. That really happened. I just sit back. I look at what's happening. I'll be like, this was out there. This was out there. This was out there. This was out there. I'm going to put that together, put this headline on it. And now in my experience, give you the context and history and what this really means. Now as a full puzzle piece, you're like, oh, Maybe Deion Sanders is trash. <laughs> but when you just see one random story, it's like, ah, he said something stupid. It's not a big deal. But when it's a list of it, yeah. and I'm breaking down the implications, you're like, ah, I, I, you've been doing this for years? You've been doing something? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't. You can't find or read anything I've ever said about Deion Sanders and said it was made up. There is a link I, or an example that shows you that it happened. I will do a favor to the listeners and viewers of this and, and just share the column that you had that actually included a whole rundown of all of Dion's <laughs> transgressions. Which and it was literally really said nice the good, yes. the bad. Yeah, bad. <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll provide that so folks have a, a, a sense of that. And I'll also provide your column on the Rachel Nichols situation. Listen, this is we're crossing the two-hour mark here close oh, to it. So. This is a legendary episode. It's like a Chris Nolan movie. It's going to be long, <laughs> but that shit is good. <laughs> but it is worth it. It is worth it. We're going to have to give chapter markers on this one so people can, you know, bounce around and find the good stuff. Listen, I, I appreciate your time. You taking out and talking about all of this. Some of it's breaking new ground for folks who may not have heard this. So I appreciate that as well. Being a little, uh, uh, you know, re revelatory in that sense. Um, what else should we know about you? What, what wait. We need to ask advice too, right? We need to make sure that you offer some advice to the young folks and folks that want to be in your role. We always do Can this talk to the folks end of the episode. We ask, ah, yeah, man, what would you the tell? Advice: um, read, study, ask questions. Do not be afraid to fail, because failure is your greatest teacher. Um, Understand that failure is part of the journey. But make it your job that you fail is the least amount of times that you can. 
me and my dad are very alike, but we are also very different. And the the, the at the stem of why we are very different is my father is someone because of his life experience and the world he has seen as being a 70 something year old black man is something I would never understand, especially in the times that he came up in. But he used to always try to teach me, hey, because I was a really bad sore loser when I was a kid playing basketball. Like it, it, in middle school and high school, if we lost on Friday night, which was rare, I didn't speak till Monday. Because from Friday night to Monday, I was just replaying the game in my mind, thinking about all the stuff we messed up and how I'm not to let that happen again. I wasn't mad at my family member, but I was just, I was that deep into it because I was like, I can't feel like this again. And he is the type that is like, once the game is over, I lost. Cool. I tried my best, but I lost. I am the person, and he would always try to teach me, you need to learn how to lose. And the way my brain is always wired was like, I will never learn how to lose. I will learn to understand that losses happen, but I will never learn how to lose. And I think that is a very important aspect to understand the importance of failure and losses, but do not learn how to lose. Um, Get you a mentor that will cuss you out and tell you that you suck and you trash but a mentor that would teach you how to not suck and to not be trash. Uh, with that, I like, I want to, or in when you get in your career, have people from time to time you can check in with. Me and Vince Goodwill, senior NBA writer at uh, Yahoo Sports, we talk all the time. Um, and I actually talked to her the other day. Chantel Lowe is the NBA mm. editor at the New York Times. The respect I have for that woman is through the roof because Chantel Love, it does not matter how big you get in your britches, the amount of acclaim, money, or just juice you will get in your career. If you want to be better, once a year, every two years, send Chantel Love the best thing you've read. You think it's the best? <laughs> You'll see. She'll she'll bring out the red pen for you. <laughs> we go you we go way back. Will yeah. feel like a college intern. Mm-hmm. And then she does this thing with me. I don't know. And I say this is saying like I ain't sent Chantel something in a long time just because I ain't felt like getting my ass whooped like that. But I, I'm due for one. But with me, she'll be like. After this, he'll tell me why this was wrong, why this was terrible. Why the hell wouldn't you do this? This was just terrible. She'll be like, but you are who you are. You a pro. You ain't getting for nothing. You know what to do with it. And then you just sitting there like, I don't know what to do with this because <laughs> you have just made me question everything I've known. And you got to get you somebody like that that when, hey, man, you think you first team all NBA, and you are, until you make the Olympic team and you don't start. Right, <laughs> and then you realize there is another level, <laughs> and you got to keep people in your corner that keep letting you know, 
and your handle ain't as tight as you think it is, I don't want you out here looking like Jalen Brown in game seven. Now you're going to make me go and reach out to Chantel and get her on this podcast. <laughs> and tell her it was me that sent you to it. Yeah, yeah. No, she has a great come-up story, too, getting to the New York yes. Times. I mean, I remember her when she was Patch. Yes. And so that is a long time ago. Um, yeah. She was in San Diego. Like a, Fantastic journalist. Old school, hard yeah. nose. I, like, man, I put blood, sweat, and tears. This is the best I can do. I know you love this. Nah, we gonna run it, but this shit sucked. Because, like, it is, you need those yeah. people. I had it very quick before we could leave. My editor, the guy who hired me, and I worked side-by-side side with in Delaware, um, God bless him, he passed away a couple years back, Jason Levine. When we were next to each other in the office working on the editorial desk, my job was to write the like the daily or every other day weekly big editorials for the paper. How the statewide publication felt about a specific topic. So I write them. He edited them. And anytime I wrote something, you know, in the newsroom you hear it. You hear the little clicks on the keyboard. He deleting something, moving something adding something this shit used to infuriate me because I'm like damn I wasn't good enough he gotta clean it up and so I gave him a nickname like the cat wings like poor little tink tink and I was like you always tinkering with my shit stop tinkering with my shit like I was like one day I'm gonna write something you don't have to tinker it and at the beginning it was a whole lot of little clicks because he just tinkering but over time them clicks got less and less and less. And I remember the one day I sent him something and it was one tink and he was just like, no, nah, you just missed one comma. It's good. You couldn't tell me nothing. Like, you couldn't tell me nothing. I finally got one through and, and that is maybe the most important thing I would give game to the young. Get you someone that is going to Pull the best out of you to where you just keep giving your all and all because one day they ain't gonna have nothing to say and it will be all worth it. The the mental torture you go through to maybe just write two paragraphs and they're like, hmm, could have shortened this right here. And you're just like, damn it, why, why didn't I know that? But once you get it, you get it because to this day, the way that I write. From Eric Bear at the New York Daily News and a desk man to Jason Levine, like I mentioned, I hear all the great editors I had in my life in my head when I write. Because when you're a writer, you learn your editor's voice, what they want. Ah, no, they would ask for more here. They would ask for a better example here. They would say, be more concise here. And once you figure out that voice, you can navigate and still, it's been years. I still, I'm writing. I hear them. Nah, nope, nah. Cut Make that. the extra phone call. Yep, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, nope. Fix that. Check it out one more time. Yeah, well, you you need those voices in your head because once they have stamped you, their 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 voices and the knowledge they put you through never goes away. Mm. 
lot of gems there a lot of gems there thank you so much for your time i mean i really appreciate this no man i appreciate this when i saw y'all launch this i was like i gotta go in there and get my shit off they they, (laughs) they, they, they ain't gonna leave me off this album i'm getting my feature (laughs) absolutely absolutely